Two weeks to go until officially Election Day, unless, of course, you're going to vote in advance or do mail-in voting. But the thing is, this race is still very much up in the air, at least according to the latest poll from Ipsos. Let's find out why we say that. Daryl Berker is with us, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. So tell us, why is this still up in the air? What are Canadians telling you? Boy, about half the vote of all of the parties says it could leave. <laughs> what? That's, that's, ba- that's basically what we're seeing right now. So people are really, even if they're saying they're voting for a particular party right now, uh, the likelihood that they could leave and go to another party is still really strong. And that, for me, uh, doing this for a long time, you tend not to see that this late late in an election campaign. So there's still a lot that can happen between now and the 20th. Okay, let's break that down then. So your poll shows that only 46% of Canadians actually say they're absolutely certain of who they're voting for. That's a lot of leeway. A lot of leeway. And the biggest leeway tends to be at the moment between the New Democrats and the Liberal Party. And that's where we've been seeing most of the movement in this election campaign. So in our polling, we've got the Conservatives with a slight lead, but the biggest movers in this election campaign have been the NDP. And what the Liberals have traditionally done is found a way to argue with those voters because they tend to be overwhelmingly Liberal Party voters who've defected that they need to come back home because the Conservative Party represents a really big threat to Canada's future. So at the moment, they're not feeling that. And they're quite comfortable being over with the New Democrats, which is why the New Democrats find themselves in approaching the mid-20s in the polling. But would you say that's something that perhaps um, the NDP should be a little nervous about? Uh, absolutely. Uh, they have to convince uh, th- those voters that they are definitely the progressive standard bearer in this election campaign and that they're right to be uh, disaffected from the Liberal Party and that they will offer something different and defend their, their interests more effectively than the Liberal Party has been able to do. Uh, and we've seen this before where the New Democrats have, uh, have really challenged the Liberals, and 2011 would be the best example of it. What would you, how do you break down like the party's voters that are motivated to vote? Like does each party have, would you say, the same number of people who say, I'm definitely voting for my party, I'm getting out to vote? Yeah, the Liberals and the Conservatives have the two highest levels, but uh, even those are basically half of their voters say, I'm uh, you know, absolutely going to vote for these parties, um, for either one of these parties. They also have the people in their party that are most likely to say that they're actually going to show up and vote, which is really important. Then you get to the New Democrats. They're more tentative, and they're also less likely to show up. The people who seem to be moving between the Liberals and the New Democrats right now tend to be younger. They tend to be you know, uh, uh, more disadvantaged people uh, in, uh, in, in the population. Uh, they're, they're people who are less attached to the political system, so they're fairly unreliable voters. Um, uh, so they're not only tentative about who they're going to vote for, they're tentative about how they're going to vote, if they're going to vote at all. This might uh, so theoretically yeah, even so drive up voters to come out and vote, though, Daryl. Yeah, it is the, one of the single biggest things that we're going to be dealing with in this election campaign, because we know that that same group that I just described also believe that uh, uh, voting in person is, uh, is more uh, risky. And also, you really wonder whether they're going to go through the effort of all the things that one would have to do to vote by mail. Right. So... Potentially, we could have a very low turnout election this time around, and that's where the advantage goes to the Conservatives and the Liberals. Now, is there a sense of which party has momentum? Very clearly. uh, It's the Conservatives followed by the NDP. So even if the Conservatives haven't been picking up the most votes, people have been impressed by Aaron O'Toole and his campaign, uh, and they've said, um, you know, this campaign is impressing me, particularly O'Toole's uh, people who are currently voting for the Conservative Party. Similar numbers for the New Democrats. 
the people who are not impressed with their campaign, 39% of people who are currently voting for the Liberal Party pick another party as having more momentum and popularity in the campaign than they have. Man, this is so fascinating, Daryl. And I also loved the, the fact that you took a look and asked people about their second choices. Right. Second choice strongest is the New Democrats. They're becoming the default for everybody. When I for first everybody. started in this game, for everybody. Well, when I first started in this game back in the 1980s, New Democrats were not in this type of a position. It was always the biggest voting pool of you know people shifting back and forth would be liberal, uh, uh, conservative, progressive conservative switchers. Now the biggest pool of people uh, going back and forth are liberal New Democrat switchers. But also, even for the Conservative Party, the people who are voting for them are so disillusioned with the Liberal Party that they're prepared to look at the New Democrats as their second choice by a slight uh, advantage over the Liberals. Okay, this doesn't sound like any election that (laughs) I've heard of before, where you're telling me Conservatives' first choice is Conservatives and their second choice is NDP? Yeah, and, and you find this among working class voters now. Um, the liberals are seen as a bit more of a party of the elite. And um, uh, people uh, can, who are in that more working class category can uh, see that there's a, a bridge between the New Democrats and the, and the Conservatives because they talk about working people. Uh, at least Aaron O'Toole has moved into that position. And by the way, that's exactly the same strategy that Boris Johnson wrote, wrote to success in the, uh, in the UK campaign a couple of years ago. Okay, this is going to make this election so interesting. Daryl, fascinating chat this morning. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Amy. Well, tomorrow is not the September 7th that we had been hoping for. Way back when, September 7th was supposed to be the day that we stepped into step four of our reopening plan, where all restrictions were lifted. Well, we know that's not happening. Instead, it's going to be a day of learning about more restrictions and announcements. For more on that, we're joined now by Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Yeah, good morning, Simi, and this is definitely not the fall that uh, Premier John Horgan in particular imagined. Uh, He thought he was going to be doing another victory lap. Instead, he was out Friday uh, offering reassurances that they've got this thing in the schools under control and you shouldn't be too worried about the vaccine cards coming tomorrow. Well, we'll see. Yeah, depends on how easy and smooth this whole transition goes. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I hear on your news this morning, you're talking about the VCTF and Terry Mooring uh, being out. Um, The Premier said Friday that uh, the BC government, very proud of the fact that it kept the schools open last year and that it's the best way to keep children safe. He said the government's record on all that is pretty good. And he also said that the government had been working with the BCTF. Uh, They don't always hit the mark working with the union, which is a bit of an understatement, I suspect. But in any event, uh, lots of assurances from the premier that they're on top of the situation, that the schools are going to be safe when they reopen. Uh, We'll see. Uh, The government... Simi is, is correct, the Premier's correct when he says that, you know, first of all, BC led the way in keeping the schools open, and second of all, that the stats that were released by Dr. Bonnie Henry showed that there were relatively small, very few outbreaks associated with the school, very little spread of COVID-19 associated with the school. But I think the area of concern that I'm hearing is something that the government did misjudge over the summer, which is just how communicable the Delta variant is. And on the weekend, there's there's a story out of the States on the weekend. Uh, American schools, as you will know, 
opened sooner. A lot of American states, you go back to school in August, right? And there's been a very serious spread of COVID-19 to children in those schools already. Yes, I know American states have a lot more cases of COVID-19 and a lot more people that aren't vaccinated. But still, I think uh, I think I can see some basis for the teachers union and for parents being concerned about whether or not last year's conditions are going to prevail this year. And there's no cohorts as well that we were just talking about as well. So it's actually going to be much more wide open than last year. Yeah, that's right. They've changed the cohort thing. And and I heard uh, Education Minister Whiteside with you last week, and I know you were asking about, you know, notifications. So, you know, you used to get an email, right? And, And now they're not doing as much notifications. Well... But she said, "Okay, you know, we'll, we will. If your if your child has been put at risk, you will be told, and we're going to be doing contact tracing and and all of that." Well, we learned last week from Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry that the system in some parts of the province is so strapped that they aren't doing contact tracing at the level they were doing before. They don't have enough staff to do it. They are, they are trying to bring back people who were reassigned or who, or, you know, their contracts were, were finished, their work was finished. They're trying to bring those people back to get back to contact tracing at the level we had before because they don't have enough people to do it. So, again, um, you know, I hear the reassurances. I hear the premier saying, don't worry. I hear the education minister saying we're on top of it. But I do think we're heading back into the school system uh, with anxiety this year. And I think one of the reasons is, the, as I say, we were supposed to be to phase four of the restart program today. Yeah. Instead... They're not on top of the pandemic, and uh, it's not clear when they will be. Let's talk about the other big news that's happening tomorrow. We are going to get more information about how and when we tell people that we're vaccinated. Yeah, and this one looks like a scramble to me as well. So uh, the, the whole system of vaccine passports or vaccine cards, vaccination cards, if you want to call them that, starts next, a week from today, next Monday. We're going to get how to get the cards tomorrow. Premier John Horgan again on Friday is saying, hey, we're doing this because the business community wants it. That's the main reason we're doing it. And he's also saying, don't worry, it's not for essential services. And you'll be able to get it. And if you're not um, technologically adept, and I put myself in that group, um, you'll be able to get a paper version or you'll be able to apply for it online. Don't worry. Right? Well, again, I think the concerns arise that the waters have been muddied by the fact that a lot of businesses out there seem to be saying, well, yeah, the idea, we like the concept, but we don't really know how it's going to work. We discovered last week just in passing in one of our, another of our briefings that it doesn't apply to fast food, but I've heard Ian Tostenson, <laughs> the restaurant industry out there, saying, well, we're still working on that definition, right? We think we understand it, but we're working on it. Well, so, if everybody provides takeout, yeah. then what How do? You, what do we call fast food? Yeah, and you know, and, and for the public, right? I mean, uh, 
<laughs> here we are on Labor Day, Simi, and you and I are both working, and that's why they call it Labor Day. But one of the <laughs> things we're doing is, you know, in Gordon McDonald, we, we really try to get into all this detail and understand it all. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm struggling to understand exactly how it's going to work in restaurants, and they're going to explain it tomorrow. But, you know, apparently uh, if your restaurant... Um, and, and a restaurant, well, you, and even if you have a patio, vaccination cards apply, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but then what makes you fast food, right? Is it you have a takeout window? Is that you're one of these recognized brands out there that everybody associates with fast food? It, this isn't easy to sort out, even with the best of intentions. Um, it's a struggle, and they haven't left much time to get it in order. I think, Simi, that's what's led to some speculation that we won't be into heavy enforcement right away when next week rolls around. Right. And I emphasize that's just speculation. But there's still so many questions about this. Police expressing reservations, restaurants saying they're going to need help on security, uh, that I think what we might be into, I'm guessing, is... We get the rules today. It takes effect next week, but it's not clear that we'll be into heavy reinforcement right away. This is what I'm wondering, if this was more of just a symbolic stick than anything to to really ramp up those vaccination numbers. Well, again, you know, the premier on Friday uh, suggested that, that this is mostly about uh, you know, he says, yes, businesses wanted it. We wanted, they wanted to be able to assure their customers that things would be safe and they, they don't want to be forced into, into closing again. Okay, but I think a big part of this was, okay, um, you know, the pressure is coming and uh, this is an incentive to get vaccinated and it's worked that way. This is not really about locking up people who won't get vaccinated. This is about adding to the pressures on them to do so. We still have 700,000 people, after all the messaging, it's just over that, I think, who haven't gotten vaccinated, including, according to the numbers, 150,000 people over the age of 60. So my age cohort and my age cohort is really at risk on this thing, still not vaccinated. So I think you're right, Simi. I think it's mostly about... Uh, incentives, or if you want disincentives, get vaccinated, send that message, keep the pressure up, and not so much about catching people and finding them right. and that sort of thing. I feel like that's kind of been BC's attitude all the way along here. Like, we're going to do this, we'll do it reluctantly, but what we really want is for you to do this. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, think of the areas where they're hesitating, right? They're, they're still not saying that teachers have to be vaccinated or staff in schools have to be vaccinated. They are still well short of saying that must happen all across the healthcare system. Yes, they've said must in long-term care, although the thing isn't being enforced yet. It doesn't kick in fully till October. They indicated last week that vaccine requirements are coming for the rest of the healthcare system. We think we might get that this week. 
But again, it's not like they've been rushing into it. They've yeah. known, at least since the middle of July, that things were not going the direction they hoped, that the Delta variant was more communicable than they suspected. And by the way, Simi, did you notice there's now a Mu variant? Yes, I um, did. And they're running out of letters in the Greek alphabet. Uh, and the Mu variant is already in California. So I think we can assume that uh, not to be too gloomy, a pandemic pessimist, we can assume it'll be here someday. Oh, boy. So much to look forward to. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. Well, we've got a lot to focus on here in BC this week, but it's always worth taking a look at what is happening elsewhere to wonder if that's something that we should prepare for. So along those lines, joining us now from Denmark is former CKNW reporter Shane Woodford. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So what has been going on there? You've got some interesting developments. Yeah, we've, uh, of course, dealing with the pandemic and the Delta variant uh, like you guys are now, but we're seeing... Um, kind of a side effect of the pandemic itself. And, and that is that in the last, you know, almost two years, year and a half, year and three quarters, whatever the pandemic's been around for, uh, what it's done to me is it's wiped out uh, some of the usual annual things we see, influenza season, that kind of stuff, to give you a sense of what's going on here. For example, in Sweden, uh, this past winter's uh, influenza season was, was nil. I mean, there was 29 uh, confirmed cases in a season where they usually see on average 14,000. So we haven't seen these things uh, while the pandemic's been going on and we're on lockdown and we're not seeing other people. We're washing our hands. We've got all these things going on. But now that's turning around. Denmark has lifted a lot of its restrictions. Uh, all of them will be gone in a matter of just five days from now. Uh, schools back in, there's more social interactions, and now we're seeing some of those usual viruses make a return, and a return in numbers called extraordinary by Denmark Statin Serum Institute. So we have this thing called an RS virus. Uh, it's a usual thing that we normally see impacts mainly young children, uh, only in the wintertime, but now we've seen in the last few weeks 1,734 cases, 520 just last week. These are numbers that even in the usual winter season would be high. Uh, in a summer, uh, beginning of fall here in Denmark, these are unheard of. Okay, so did you say a couple things? One, that all restrictions are being lifted in five days, and what's the vaccination rate there? Uh, we've got about 75% of the population on one dose, uh, 72% on two. We lifted uh, virtually every restriction in the country. Well, I mean, there wasn't that many remaining, to be honest with you. Uh, we're lifted on September 1st. And then the government's taken this step of removing a uh, designation of COVID as a, as a socially impactful disease. And it was a legal designation that allowed them to act and uh, do a lot of the pandemic rules. You know, you were locking down. All this stuff was justified by that sort of legal status. On September 10th, Sydney, they're removing the legal status. And with that will be the legal justification to render all restrictions. So uh, as of September 10th, every single restriction in Denmark, I mean, there's literally three left. Those will be gone. Even with the Delta variant raging? Even with the Delta variant raging. But we're only doing, um, you know, we had about peaked out at about a thousand cases here and now we're seeing you know four to six hundred and they're on the decline so uh, something's going right in Denmark as far as the Delta variant is concerned. And what's it like in the other Scandinavian countries? Uh, not so good. Sweden is seeing its numbers climb. Uh, Finland is seeing a fourth Delta driven wave that uh, saw daily infections among the highest they've ever seen and as we speak 
Uh, Norway is being hit right now, and they're seeing record high daily infection numbers as well. So it's just this weird delay because we saw the Delta variant hit in England, of course, and it caused a lot of chaos there. It hit in a lot of European countries, and then it started to creep over. Uh, we got it, and now uh, the other Scandinavian countries seem to be on a bit of a delay. And, of course, you guys got it about three or four weeks after we saw our peak. So uh, it's been interesting. Usually the wave is pretty firm in how it kind of sweeps across Europe, and then you know it can almost count for clockwork now to, to when it arrives in North America. And now it's just more sporadic. You know, that's fascinating to me, Shane, that, you know, these the viral infections are making a comeback because it felt like last year people were like, oh, now we get it. This is how we prevent cold and flu season from being so terrible. But it sounds like everybody just went back to doing what they normally did. Yeah. And this is something epidemiologists here to me have been really, really worried about. I mean, uh, Public Health England, uh, European public health officials, they've been warning for months that we need to watch out because some of these usual viruses could not only return, but could return in phenomenal numbers. And especially among young children, the concern is with a full year and, and kind of almost two because the influenza season in you know 2019 to 2020 literally came to a screeching halt in March. So we've seen almost two years where there's been very little activity on some of these common ailments that we're used to seeing year in and year out. So epidemiologists here are saying that, you know, especially for young children, that's time where their immune system hasn't been able to have these things, been able to learn about them, adapt to them, and then begin to build up an immunity. So there's going to be less immunity, especially among the younger population. And that's going to provide, according to right. epidemiologists here, you know, kind of a doorway for something that could be unprecedented. So that's because they haven't had a cold or the flu in the last couple of years. Yeah, and Denmark, as a matter of fact, is launching a major influenza vaccine uh, campaign beginning in October. Uh, and they're, for the first time ever in this country, they're going to give flu vaccines to children between two and six years old. That's never happened before here. Well, that is un- unusual. So what about measures then to combat that? Are they going back to recommending like lots of hand washing and all that? Well, they're trying to keep that, but I mean, everything is so back to normal uh, that it's now in the hands of, you know, how good the teachers and the schools are mandating this thing, how good parents are mandating at home. I assume that on a societal level, we're probably more aware now than we would be in 2018 or 2016 before, yeah, before we had a pandemic. But, I mean, looking at the number of RS virus cases we've seen in Denmark, uh, you know, I have to think that um, we're, we're in for some kind of trouble here. And, and the concern here to me is that, you know, the Delta variant isn't going away and who knows what other variants spill out of the other. Um, but there, the concern in Denmark is the of potential of a twindemic in, in the autumn and fall and going into the winter, because, you know, if we see another COVID wave pop up and we don't have the restrictions in place, maybe it grabs hold a lot quicker at the same time, say we see an explosion of, of influenza cases or some other virus cases where suddenly we see a flood of kids going into the hospital and COVID patients, right. that it's going to pretty quickly create an untenable situation on the healthcare front. Uh, what was it like getting everybody vaccinated in Denmark? What was that process like, Shane? Very, uh, very organized. It was unbelievably organized. It was uh, the ball dropped December 27th uh, here in Denmark. Uh, you waited until um, you got an invitation and in something called an e-box. Everybody in Denmark has a, an electronic encrypted email system that the government used to send uh, all sorts of important messages to you. Uh, so they did it by age groups and then eventually they took that off. So as soon as you got an invitation, pop into your e-box. 
Uh, then you went out and got vaccinated and that worked really well. And now we're into a situation where it's been really interesting, where it's been mass vaccinations so far. So, I mean, you know, we've seen days of up to 100,000 inoculations a day. But now we're getting into the nitty gritty where it's been, okay, most of the population is vaccinated, but we have, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand holdouts. Now, how do you reach those? Uh, the age group of 20 to 29 years old is the most unvaccinated age group in Denmark. And so the, now they've changed the entire vaccination scheme. So they've moved it to a much more mobile system. So we have vaccination pop-up sites. Uh, they're right. in primary schools. They're in neighborhoods with low vaccination rates. They're in university grounds. And now they're just in the muck, and they're really trying to get to this last little group of people. But the numbers we're seeing daily are now, you know, they've dropped underneath 15,000 inoculations a day. So, And they're going to get lower. Oh, boy. All right, Shane, thank you. Always a pleasure. Take care. That We talk about back to school, and I think most people think, okay, that's the K-12 system. But it's a big back to school week right now for post-secondary students as well. Everything was online all last year. That is not the case. Uh, it was move-in weekend um, up at UBC, which is a pretty stressful, very busy time. But with, you know, living on residence, with classes back on campus, it also means more expenses, right? Uh, more rent to pay, places to live, more food to buy. And that means the discussion of student loans remains paramount out there, especially during this election campaign. So you've got political parties that are offering tax breaks, uh, interest-free repayments, all the way to student loan forgiveness, because surveys show that post-secondary students are concerned about their finances. They're concerned about the financial and mental stress that goes along with that. So joining us now is Stacey Anchikoleski, the Interim CEO of Credit Counseling of Canada. Stacey, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Sammy. Thank you for having me. It feels like we start young when it comes to those financial pressures. Yes, we do. <laughs> I think we start as children, right? Because we learn our, our money from our parents because money is never just about the dollars and cents. It's about how we feel about it, too. So we learn at an early age, you know, to get stressed about it or not. Do you think that the post-secondary students of today have more stresses? You know what? I do. I, I do. I think that there is a lot more pressure for students. I think they're, you know, the cost of living is more expensive. Tuition is higher. Books are higher. And I think students are concerned about the education that they're getting. And so I think there's a lot of pressure and there's financial pressure. And of course, there's also the pressure of going to school and getting good grades, too. That is certainly the case. And they're juggling that with, you know, you can't just have a part-time job anymore, it feels like, and no. also go to school, can you? No, not at all. Oh, and then, you know, of course, students still need to have like somewhat of a life too, because it's school and it's a really, you know, hopefully it's a great experience. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on young adults nowadays. So what is your recommendation? How do you counsel them when they come to credit counseling? Yeah, you know what, the first thing I always say is breathe and remember you're not alone. You know, it's really easy when we're having money problems to start to turtle in, right, close into ourselves and feel like we're the only person in the world who just doesn't, you know, who just doesn't know what's going on with their money. And all I can say is that they're, you know, they're completely wrong. You know what, nobody is alone when it comes to money problems. So the first thing is, remember you're not alone. The second thing is that they can do is create a realistic budget. Now, look, I know that's not very much fun because budgets are kind of boring and who wants to write down your expenses. But really, that's where you get the um, that's where you get the solutions, because sometimes the story's not as bad as you think. Sometimes it is. But at least if it is, you know what you do. You, you've got the numbers in front of you. And then I always recommend students to spend or spend the time. And I'm dating myself here, Simi, saying the paperwork, but yeah. you know, spend the time <laughs> applying for 
you know, scholarships, bursaries, any kind of grants. There's a lot of money that's left over because students think that everyone else is qualified and not them. That's why you've got nothing to lose, right? That's actually really good advice because often it's so hard to navigate all of that, isn't it? It is. And it's the, it's worth the effort. It's worth the paperwork. It's worth the time. Because if you actually get a scholarship of, let's say, $2,000 for, you know, the semester or even the year, that's an extra two grand that you didn't have that you just had to do some paperwork for. So it's always worth applying. Right. And my last bit, yeah. my last bit of advice is always if they're stressed, even if, the, if there's a moment of stress, reach out to a local nonprofit credit counseling association. You know, we've got a bunch of qualified members that provide free credit counseling. They provide unbiased advice. The student will walk away with compassion, information, resources, and a plan of action at no cost. And do you think that relieves some of the stress for them? You know what? It, it's quite interesting to see the stress um, come down. I, used to, I had the privilege of counseling clients. And I would see them come in at an eight out of 10. And then within an hour, they would come down to a six. And then they would report back to me that they could sleep better that night because they actually had real information that's unbiased. It's from a trusted source. And then they can go do something because nobody teaches us how to deal with our money in school. So how do students know? They just have to fumble forward. And that's not fair either. No, it's not. I was thinking nobody really teaches us as adults, right? We also just learn as we go along. And I'm sure you deal with a lot of adults too. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like we, um, you know, you turn 18 and there's this, you know, fairy dust that suddenly flies out of your first credit card. You you take a swipe and then suddenly you're magically, you know, financially literate. Well, that's not, certainly wasn't the case for me. And how would it be the case for everyone else? So we have to teach people and that's okay. It's important that consumers know that they're not alone, especially students. It's hard enough going to school, but they don't have to deal with the financial pressure all on themselves. Right. But haven't you in the past year probably got a full load of people already that you're dealing with? We do. And that's okay. You know what? Our credit counselors love, they love budgeting and they love to help people. So we're always happy to help people, you know, give them the right information and the right advice so that they can move on with their lives and create the life that they want. That's always great advice. So where can they go then to, if, they, if they listen to this, Stacey, and they think, yeah, maybe I should just get a little bit of advice. What should they do? Absolutely. You know what? Check out our website at creditcounselingcanada.ca. You can find the province that you're living in <clears throat> and find a trusted resource. Our members are accredited as well as our credit counselors, and we're happy to help. All right. Good advice. Stacey, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day, Finney. You too. That is Stacey Anchik-Alexi, Alexi, is the Interim CEO of Credit Counseling of Canada.